0: I have a serious question for you. Were you ever a teenager in church? My I grew up in church, right? But, but a teenager in church, I'll bet just looking at you, you were, you were probably one of the good ones. Uh, you know, the good kids who knew how to pay attention. I had to get a little more creative. Uh, my friend Jason and I would create time capsules with the bulletin material, take a strip off uh, make a time capsule. Put them in the metal tubes of the chair. Pop the top off and slide them in there. We'd record the weather, uh, the date, how many songs were sung, how long the prayer was, because there was always a you know someone who got up and, and did a prayer. How, time that. Uh, how long the sermon lasted. Right. I recall a sermon record that was uh, an hour and twelve minutes. It's pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. Uh, before someone could pretend to be on their Bible by looking at their phone. Yeah, it's really that obvious, by the way. Teens looked through the Bibles in church when they were bored. Is that a bad activity? Well, as part of my rascally nature, the verses that popped out were were crude, <laughs> of course. Imagine that. Imagine that. One of the first verses that I memorized outside of maybe a regular class or or school, or those different kind of things, was Deuteronomy twenty-three, twelve through fourteen, <laughs> and I figured it would never come up uh, except as a joke uh, until today. Yeah, it says you shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it. All right. This, so, tech context: this is Deuteronomy. This is the the Torah. This is God's instructions through Moses to the people, um, because God is now dwelling in the midst of the camp, in the tabernacle, right? The tent of meeting, his presence there. You shall have a place outside the camp and you shall go out to it. And you shall have a trowel with your tools. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover your excrement. Because So, because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy, so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you, right? (laughs) So... That's a that's a silly example. Bring a trowel, right? Bring a trowel when you go outside the camp to relieve yourself is what he's talking about, right? To go relieve yourself, dig it up, cover your up, Because the Lord your God walks among you to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. So your camp must be holy, right? God's not about to walk through the camp and step in any of that, right? So this crude verse, you know, it gets it easily gets a chuckle. There's in the midst of it is an amazing principle and it tells us so much about God's desire to be present with his people. Think about that. When I was growing up, I heard the emphasis on going up to dwell with God, you know, but the Hebrew scriptures are about God coming down to dwell with his people. right? It starts in Eden. And that gets disrupted. But then he wants to come back down and be with his people. If Yahweh is among us, who can be against us? (laughs) I'd like to see you try to attack us when Yahweh is with us. Uh, To quote Chesty Puller, who's a famous decorated marine lieutenant general, which I'm now becoming familiar with. He said this, we're surrounded. That simplifies the problem. They're in front of us. Behind us, and we are flanked on both sides by an enemy that outnumbers us 29 to 1. They can't get away now. (laughs) The Hebrews in the wilderness had the God of the universe come down to dwell among them. Yahweh is in the tabernacle and walking among you to save you and deliver you from your enemies. Whom shall we fear? The enemies that surround us can't get away now. They have been drawn in. So the Bible's main message, uh, if you think about this, it is not about how to go to heaven when we die. It's more about God coming from his heavenly spiritual dimension to live with us here. That looming question since the fall of the divine beings and human beings in the Garden of Eden is, how can God become one again with his creation? Of course, it started in Eden, as I mentioned, with the first humans, but then again in the tabernacle in the wilderness. If God's going to live among you, preparations need to be made. And the Torah, the first five books, actually, when you think about it, the Torah is kind of all of the, the scripture, is outlining the measures required to continue to be the host of God's presence. Think about that. The Torah outlined the measures required to continue playing host to the God of the universe. Touch no unclean thing, he is among you. Now think about it, it's, it's quite an amazing proposition to have Yahweh who is consuming fire dwell among us. So what kind of preparations do we need to have besides the trowel to dig with, right? When you relieve yourself, Uh, Speaking of our God as a consuming fire, uh, as you know, it's almost time to put on sunscreen if if our summer ever arrives. Um, That's one way to make preparation for contact with the sun's rays, right? That makes sense. And if, if summer never comes, we should maybe consider space travel to get closer to the sun. Actually, we've been sending probes and telescopes toward the sun, and it takes years to prepare the materials to shield the spacecraft from the sun's rays. Right? And the sun is 93 million miles away, which we're, we're thankful for. Um, and that's difficult to manage as it is, but it would be quite another thing to have the energy of the sun, the sun itself come and dwell in your neighborhood. Think about that. How would your HOA have to prepare for that type of radiation? Right? Your whole way of living would need to adjust with layers of protection. And it was the same way that the layers of protection that would need to be in the Hebrew camp for God's presence to be among us in the tabernacle. And so the tabernacle experience in the wilderness was an attempt to play host to the divine presence. Some of you know, um, it didn't always work out. Sometimes there was uh, an exile and they had to go away from God's presence, which is the worst thing imaginable for the Hebrew people. What are they gonna say about us now, right? So the temple and the tabernacle space was not an option for the Jews. Should we have God's presence among us or not? Well, if we don't have God's presence among us, we're done for. It was their very protection, their assurance of rescue, pardon, salvation. He's among you to deliver you from your enemies, right? And there are all sorts of rules, as you can imagine, for when the God of creation moves into your neighborhood, in March of this year, the world watched with concern when the nuclear power plants were threatened by Russian troops, you know, get being shelled and all that. Don't breach the wall. There's power in there that you do not understand. It's the same with God's presence dwelling in the midst of his people. So it's it's very rare for a human to be invited into the very presence of God. And even then, special preparations were needed to be made. And for the nation of Israel, what they did was send the lifeblood of an animal on ahead of them to represent them and their life before God's presence. And then, as Jesus began his ministry on earth, again, God coming to be with us, he brought the kingship or the, the kingdom. He was becoming the tabernacle among us as God's very presence. As this happened, John the Baptist was warning the people to prepare their hearts, repent, wash themselves clean, because God was coming, and and we needed to to be prepared for that. He's coming into the camp, as it were, and and we don't know when he's going to come, so get ready. Get your trowels. Clean up the place. Clean up your hearts. And That made complete sense, especially to the Israelites. They understood that. We need to repent of our sin that that drove God's presence away from us in the first place, leaving us vulnerable to attack. We need to turn from idols that caused us to go into exile and prepare our hearts to receive a new work of God. Are are you tracking with me? Does that make sense? That God's presence is all that matters. If he leaves, we need to invite him back. Real simple kind of concept, but it took the entire Old Testament to tell us that. And then John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 3, 1 through 3, and then I'll tag verse 11 as well. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's kingdom coming here. Wow. For this is he who spoke of, was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, "...the voice of one crying in the wilderness." Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. This is what John would cry out and gather crowds. God's coming back. His kingdom is coming to be established. He's coming here. And John would say, I baptize you with the water of repentance, verse 11. But he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry he will baptize you with the holy spirit and fire whoa and so when jesus died as our substitute he also rose from the dead and ascended to the throne bringing his blood to the altar in the the heavenly temple the heavenly space to represent our life before the very presence of almighty god and so then if if we are in christ then our life is wrapped up in his life and His life's blood was presented in the very presence of God. And so now, once and for all, His sacrifice covers for our sins, and guess what? Makes us His dwelling place. Together, we represent the temple space where God dwells, and we represent His presence in the world. So now we become the space. So God promises the very presence of God will be among the people of God to accomplish the mission of God. Because it's not over when God saves you. It's just begun. Acts 1.8 says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In our passage today, we're going to meet a dozen men who were baptized and ready for the Messiah. In fact, trying to walk in the Messiah's ways. Here's our passage, Acts chapter 19, 1 through 10. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Okay, Paul uh, is traveling on his big whirlwind tour Apollos is away. He's in Corinth. We've just been talking about him, and, and Luke wants to make a distinction. Uh, Apollos isn't here. <laughs> so Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we, we don't know about that. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Or, no, that the Spirit of God wants to do what again? And he said, well, into what then were you baptized? And they said, well, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That's Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying there were about 12 men in all I want to show you that the Holy Spirit is not an optional accessory okay Jesus disciples are indwelt with Jesus spirit there is no other option These disciples are being shown as lacking the essential qualities of Jesus' people, right? I imagine you've had to make a purchase at some time when the optional accessories are being added up. But wait, there's more, and you can have this, and a trim package on a vehicle, or extra features on your phone or computer, but the Holy Spirit is not an optional accessory. Okay, said another way, there are lots of ways to follow Jesus, but without the Spirit is not one of them. Okay, lots of ways to follow Jesus. Well, you know, this teacher tells me, you know, we're going to try this, or we're going to live in this place, or we're going to go overseas, or we're going to stay in our neighborhood and we reach out here, or we're a part of this church, we're a part of that church. There are lots of ways to follow Jesus, but without the Spirit is not one of them, okay? Put another way, <laughs> this, is, this is big, a disciple without the Spirit is dead on arrival without the Spirit. just it's just It's a contradiction in terms. We are the current temple space of the Most High God. Thinking back to the previous temple space, think about it. If the God of the angel armies is not on your side, in your camp, dwelling among you, you will surely be destroyed. And it's the same now and the the spirit of god testifies with our spirit that we are god's children his spirit at work within us and sadly there are let's say disciples quote unquote now without the spirit and they're not safe and secure but i said the thing and i prayed the prayer and i and i well i came to church or i, I walked an aisle or well, do you have the spirit of god So there are disciples without the Spirit, I guess, and, and, and they're not safe and secure. God's presence does not dwell among them. The camp is subject to being surrounded and raided, and I do not want that for you. About 10 years ago, I, I trained and, and took a team, including one man named Wes, on a mission trip, and he shared the gospel, the good news about Jesus and faith in, in him, with a girl. And she gave her allegiance to Jesus. And you could tell she was lit up. The Spirit of God was alive and well in her. And this is what Wes asked her. Uh, could you explain back to me what you're experiencing? Because he had never been filled with the Spirit. He had gone through the motions. And nobody's hating on him for that. It's just a matter of, do you have the Spirit of God? You know, shes he's like, okay, your turn. Preach. Preach to me, what is this that you've just got a hold of that I don't? And I still hear stories of pastors getting saved after years of ministry and and what we would call discipleship. What what were they teaching? One truth I've stumbled on in Christianity is, is that everything we do in the church is making disciples of some sort. Everything we do, you're making a type of a disciple, they're following something, right? Another way to say it, in the way I say it is, everything is discipleship. Intentional or not, we are modeling how we follow Jesus. Oh, don't get all excited about obeying, just sit down and learn more, or I don't know about that spirit stuff, just do the right thing. And we're making disciples of whatever it is that we're doing. And again, there's lots of ways to follow Jesus, but not without the Spirit, right? That's not one of them. The Holy Spirit, again, is not an optional accessory. I'm, maybe you're asking this. So how will I know this testimony in, in my heart? How will I know that the Spirit indwells me? Uh, this passage talked about tongues and prophecy and, and fire. Is that is that what we're supposed to be looking for? And I just say, good question, class. I'm really glad you asked. Paul said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Belief in Messiah, in Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah as Lord, right? And baptism in his name were the first steps. The Spirit indwells believers in Jesus baptized in his name. Now, the outburst of the Spirit with tongues and prophecy was a beautiful sign of the movement of God in their midst. We've seen this several times in the book of Acts. uh, But not every time someone believed was there this outburst of of, uh, tongues and and prophecy. And I, I think this, I think that the Spirit was showing off in these disciples in Ephesus. Spirit wants to show off in these disciples. But I will say, I've been in scenarios where the disciples wanted to show off the Spirit. Do you sense this difference? The Spirit's showing off in these disciples, and and I've seen, been in scenarios where the disciples want to show off the Spirit, but I think that's the wrong way to think about it, to, to use the Spirit in that way. Because, see, the Spirit produces fruit. Disciples don't produce the Spirit. The Spirit produces fruit. The disciples don't produce the Spirit. The transformation of the Spirit leads to the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's a way to tell that you've got the Spirit. And some have made a case that the outburst in tongues and prophecy shows up because it's another decisive moment in salvation history. Remember Luke's thesis in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, right? It wasn't power just for power's sake. It was power for witness. And the Spirit fell on Pentecost Day in Jerusalem and Peter preached around there and then in Judea we see the Spirit coming alive in people there. And then Cornelius believing. And then we see the signs of the Spirit again in this way. They're present. Then we see it in Samaria, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And we see this Peter and John lay hands on the Samaritan converts. And a new phase began with speaking a worshipful tongue and, and truth from God to the people. Another new phase of mission is now in this very important region the third most powerful city in the Roman Empire, Ephesus. And in this new phase of mission, these 12 men are included now into the church. And look what happens. It says the whole region hears the gospel. Now, Paul is spending a lot of time in Ephesus and training a lot of people. And look what happens. Let's go back up to Acts chapter 9, 8 through 10. As Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, he was reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, the way, that's a, that's the name of the Christian movement. They're speaking evil of the way before the congregation. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul is preaching the kingdom. He's preaching that the Messiah is Jesus, that Jesus the Messiah is Lord, Judge, and King, and that Allegiance to Him rescues you from judgment. And no doubt he emphasized the Spirit's dwelling among the people of God to accomplish the mission of God. And it may have been these dozen who traveled all over to share the message of Jesus as newly empowered disciples. The message went out. Chris Wright in his book, The Mission of God's People says this, it's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. God's mission. Do you catch that? The power is for witness and for mission. And it's not that The God, as it's been said another way, not it's not that the God of the church has a mission in the world, but the God of mission has a church in the world. Right. Here we go. Here we go. So I have some pesky pastor questions for you. Um, I'll just start with what Paul said, asked, uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Uh, Is your discipleship of Jesus empowered by the Spirit? if so how tell me the story tell someone the story another question do others notice the spirit of god active in you will you ask them do you see do you do you see the spirit of god representing himself through me in closing i just want to talk about Three things, uh, spiritual warfare, spiritual victory, and the spirit-filled life. Spiritual warfare, um, I want you to think about this. When you are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, you declare war. The old you that was tainted by death and destined for punishment is dead and gone. The old has gone, the new has come. Just like Israel coming through the water, leaving the chariots and all of Egypt's army drowning behind them, so we pass through the waters and come to new life. And if you forgot that you were in a war, you're probably losing that war. There are schemes against you and your family. The dark powers want to take you down and silence your voice. I don't think I would have to spend a whole lot of time trying to prove that to you. I think you can feel it. Spiritual warfare is for real. When we're baptized, we are saying, you no longer have your hooks into me. You had your hooks into the dead man, but guess what happened? That dead man died, and now I'm raised in new life. So we're declaring war on the kingdom of darkness. Do you want to do that? Do you need to be baptized? Come talk to me. (laughs) Spiritual victory. Let's just confess that it's very mysterious how the spirit works. God works in mysterious ways, right? You can do no better than to have a spirit of obedience to say yes to Jesus. And when he says no, we trust him. You just keep your yes on the table. And trust Jesus. I'm bringing this up because we see in this very region of Ephesus, where Paul is, it's now filled with the message of the gospel. It was the very region where they were forbidden to speak the gospel earlier. Whatever the Spirit tells you to do, do it. The Spirit forbade them to preach in Asia before, and now. All Asia has heard the word of the Lord. You can trust his timing. When he says no, that's fine. When he requires something of you, you say yes. It's actually pretty simple and very difficult at the same time. And that's why the third thing is I want to invite you to the spirit-filled life. Okay. Last week, I encouraged us to keep Jesus in his proper place. Stay in the proper, keep him in the proper place. And that place is on the throne of Of our lives, okay? Imagine with me the captain's chair, the driver's seat, the pilot's cockpit. Jesus' place is sitting in that seat by the Spirit that lives inside us. Can we agree on that? The Spirit dwells in us, but we often demote him from his place. We sometimes take over, right? Say it another way if Jesus is your co pilot, you need to switch seats. He's not just there as your buddy, or your navigational guide. He's in charge on the throne. We know that the Spirit indwells believers, and we give Him the throne of our lives. Many times throughout the day, in the week, the years, we're tempted to eject him from that spot and run things ourselves, right? Have you felt that tendency? Yeah, of course you have. It's a daily occurrence, really. We also know that we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit, which allows him to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And we also know that if we ask anything of Jesus according to his will, he gives us what we ask for. So putting it all together, we need Jesus on the throne of our lives. And when we demote him, we confess that as sin. And and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so what do we do? We thank him for that forgiveness. Ask him to retake the throne of our lives. That's the filling of of the spirit. And, And ask him for his protection and guidance. So that he can walk among us, right? So that he could be... In our midst. When we live this way, we allow the Spirit of God to walk around our camp and help us clean up our space. The daily maintenance of confessing our sin and inviting the Spirit to fill us is very similar to keeping a trowel handy in the camp.